0: i was right again the colts have the worst roster in the league according to espn this just came out last week yet i was saying it a year ago i hate quoting espn because this is how confirmation bias works we only talk about the articles that come out the podcasts we listen to that confirm our existing beliefs. But anything that can confirm my beliefs about Ryan Grigson is something I am going to share on Roto Underworld Radio. Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter or email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. With Ryan Grigson, if it looks like a meathead, if it drafts like a meathead, if it signs free agents like a meathead, then it's a meathead. And I'm not sorry about calling Ryan Grigson a meathead because it's obvious that he's running his team as if a meathead is running it, which means he's a meathead because he's the one running it. <laughs> Did that make sense? What I just said, I <laughs> just, I was at a delayed processing. What I just said is like, that make sense. But I want to be clear, my criticism of Ryan Grigson has always been of Ryan Grigson, the real-life GM, not the fantasy GM. When I criticize Ryan Grigson, I'm not talking about Ryan Grigson from a fantasy football context. Ryan Grigson is good for fantasy football, at least. He's just bad for fans of the Colts because he runs the Colts like a fantasy team. That's the problem. Going into the 2015 draft, Ryan Grigson needed offensive line help. He needed defensive line help. But he said, fuck it. Let's draft a wide receiver who runs a 4-3-3 but never reached 1,000 receiving yards in college. Party! Woo-hoo-hoo! Hail Mary on every play! No. The last player in the draft they needed was Philip Dorsett in 2015, and they drafted Philip Dorsett in the first round. We talk all the time on this show about not judging people based on one mistake, but sometimes that one mistake is a window into a flawed process. And the Philip Dorsett draft pick was a window into a flawed roster construction and player evaluation process present in the Colts front office, led by Ryan Grigson. So of all the singular events in Colts player personnel history, the Philip Dorsett draft pick was impactful. It was illuminating, but it was also good for Andrew Luck's fantasy owners. The Philip Dorsett pick was good for Andrew Luck's fantasy honers and literally no one else that cares about football. Now I have a Buzzard email. Buzzard writes in, what happened to Des Bryant on the last show? So on the last show, we went through my top 10 redraft wide receivers. Exciting show. The most exciting show of the year was last week. Go listen to it. Search for Roto Underworld Radio on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. It was a fun, 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 fun show. Talked about everyone from Odell Beckham Jr. to Julio Jones to Keenan Allen and Brandon Cooks. But we did not mention Des Bryant, but that's not because Des Bryant isn't on my top 10 rankings. We just only had time to talk about nine players. And if you want to see exactly where Des Bryant slots in, go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. But I'll admit it, last week I skipped Des Bryant because... I didn't think I had anything interesting to offer. I couldn't think of an interesting viewpoint on Des Bryant last week. Because there's just no reason to think that last season was anything else but an aberration. Last year was the perfect storm. The perfect storm of shit. It was a perfect shit storm. It's really what it was. A broken foot followed by a broken quarterback. Last season for Des Bryant was the ultimate throw-it-out season. I have on playerprofiler.com in front of me Des Bryant's 2015 opportunity, productivity, and efficiency metrics, and I don't care about any of it! I will spend no time during this offseason looking at what Des Bryant did in 2015 because I don't believe it is predictive of anything for 2016. I am going back and I am looking at 2014. I'm even going back and looking at 2013, going back and looking at 2012. Because before last season, Des Bryant posted three straight seasons with 1,200-plus yards and 12-plus touchdowns. What? Yeah, rewind. <laughs> des Bryant posted three straight seasons of 1,200-plus yards and 12-plus touchdowns. That is nearly impossible to do, particularly the 12 touchdowns. 12 touchdowns plus a year for three straight years? What? Julio Jones didn't even have double-digit touchdowns last year, and he almost reached 200 targets, and he was the only big receiver they could target in the red zone and yet couldn't reach 10 touchdowns. Des Bryant, meanwhile, did it for three straight years, 12 plus. In 2014 specifically, Des Bryant posted 20 fantasy points per game on only 136 targets. That is sublime efficiency which was demonstrated by Des Bryant's production premium plus 38.6 was second in the league, and his yards per target of 9.7 was 10th in the league. To finish top 10 in production premium and yards per target was exceptional. Anytime any player can do that, you know that is a good receiver. And in 2016... Tony Romo is back, and Des Bryant is back, and they are healthy. So it's time to climb aboard the Des Bryant Choo Choo train. Choo choo, choo choo, 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 choo. No, I'm not petering out. This is exciting. Des Bryant is exciting. He's gonna be back this year. Choo choo! Choo choo! Yeah! Woohoo! <laughs> And we have another buzzard message. This buzzard message is brought to you by Reality Sports Online. Reality Sports Online offers sophisticated features such as rookie drafts, multi-year contracts, multi-team trades, franchise tags, injured reserve, automated contracts, salary cap functionality, the works. Test your general manager's skills for free at realitysportsonline.com in a free mock free agency auction just to get a feel for how cool the platform is. It's really cool. And if you like what you see, use the promo code UNDERWORLD to receive a 10% discount on your team or league today. Fantasy just got real at realitysportsonline.com. So Buzzard writes in, Sigmund Bloom thinks James White is as effective as Deion Lewis. when given give an opportunity. Oh boy. Oh boy. Don't do this, Sigmund. Don't do this. Please don't. Don't pull a Grigson with this one insane take that reveals your process to be completely flawed. Please don't do this. That's simply incorrect. That's all it is. Because James White is just a guy. He was Bilal Powell in the second half. James White and Bilal Powell were the same guy in the second half of the season last year. And it just so happens that James White's best comparable player on playerprofile.com is none other than Bilal Powell. The only difference is Bilal Powell was much more productive at the college level than James White was. Because James White posted a mere 13.2% dominator rating that was only 10th percentile. The one impressive number on James White's college resume was he did have, in his final season at Wisconsin, he almost reached 40 receptions. That was impressive. But Bilal Powell, on the other hand, he had a 34% dominator rating. That was 73rd in the league. So at Louisville, Bilal Powell was a workhorse. He was the focal point of the offense. James White has never in his football career since he started college ever been the focal point of an offense, and he never will be for the remainder of his professional career. I can tell you that unless he goes to Canada. I remember week after week after week in 2015, James White and Bilal Powell had the exact same salary on DraftKings and FanDuel, and you usually wanted to play play one of them because they were guaranteed to receive targets in the passing game, but you didn't know which one to choose. It was a coin flip. I mean, James White and Bilal Powell are the ultimate coin flip. They are the same guy. And just as James White is very similar to Bilal Powell, Dion Lewis is more similar to Jamal Charles than he is James White. These two running backs couldn't be more different other than the fact that they're both below average in size. That's where the similarities between James White and Deion Lewis end. Deion Lewis, like Bilal Powell, also posted a 34% Dominator rating at Pittsburgh. And Deion Lewis broke out at an early age. He was only 18 years old when he became the starting running back for the Pittsburgh Panthers. That's impressive. And Deion Lewis has elite agility, which is exhibited in his efficiency metrics. Deion Lewis, 58.8% juke rate, was first in the league last year by a wide margin. One of the most impressive single-season metrics I've ever seen. James White's juke rate evaded tackles per touch on playerprofiler.com in 2015, 24.2. Less than half of what Deion Lewis Posted on a per-touch basis, James White evaded less than half of the number of tackles that Deion Lewis did. 24.2% juke rate, 51st in the league, and his yards per carry, 2.5. Yet, yet, James White also had a 60.4 production premium, which was number one in the league. How is that possible? How is it possible that Deion Lewis could blow away James White in both juke rate and yards per carry? Dion Lewis demonstrated an ability to win in all phases between the tackles, outside the tackles, and in the passing game. That's what a plus 48.8% production premium, a 4.8 yards per carry, and a 7.3 yards per touch on the Dion Lewis profile tells you. We've talked about it on multiple shows The -the across-the-board efficiency metrics that Deion Lewis posted last season were rare. They were once every five to ten years special. Deion Lewis looked like Barry Sanders in 2015. And so this idea that you would state that James White and Deion Lewis... Are comparable is an absolute absurdity but then again even though James White finished last in the league in yards per carry and it was outside the top 50 in juke rate he had a better production premium and a better yards per touch than Deion Lewis how is that possible how does it happen how do you have such a wide disparity how does one finish last in yards per carry and first in yards per touch how does that happen it happened because James White benefited from randomness. Sigmund Bloom was fooled by randomness in 2015. James White's production premium and yards per touch were so high because he was the luckiest running back in 2015. 25% of James White's carries were Red Zone carries. That's a disproportionate percentage. And he converted almost all of them into touchdowns. How the hell did he do that? James White is only 204 pounds. He's never been known as a goal line back in his history playing football going all the way back to Wisconsin. Why would anyone give the ball to James White in a high leverage goal line situation? He's not a between the tackles runner. That's not how he wins. Well, the reason why James White converted most of his red zone carries into touchdowns last season isn't because he has a nose for the end zone. We don't do ridiculous narratives on this show. It's because the Patriots called the right play at the right time. When James White happened to be on the field, it was a right place, right time situation. That's what lucky is. James White was lucky in 2015. His impressive efficiency metrics were a product of luck, whereas Deion Lewis's impressive efficiency metrics across the board were a product of both luck and skill. It's always a mix of both. But with James White, I would argue it was predominantly luck. With Deion Lewis, I would argue it was predominantly skill. But this misconception that James White and Deion Lewis are close to equivalent isn't the only industry misconception that you are going to hear or read across the fantasy football landscape this summer. I've already heard a bunch of industry misconceptions, and we're still in early June. So we're going to start a new segment on the show called Industry Misconceptions. And I'll reverberate my voice and whatever. And this segment is brought to you by Apex. Apex is the best place to play seasonal fantasy football for money. With a skill-based format and industry-leading payouts, Apex ensures the best fantasy players win big. And now Apex has Dynasty Leagues. Yes! So go to apexfantasyleagues.com and sign up for a league today. The first... Industry misconception is Jay Ajayi's knee problems were the reason why his draft stock fell from day two to the fifth round. There are fantasy analysts that genuinely believe that Jay Ajayi would have been a second round pick if not for a degenerative knee condition. <laughs> It's a certain type of person who believes in Jay I've finally identified who that type of person is. It's the hack metrics person. It's the wannabe sports metrics person who fashions himself. As a member of Metrics Twitter, those individuals love Jay Ajayi for some reason. But it's funny. The savvy Metrics people and the film grinders agree that Jay Ajayi is not capable of being a primary NFL ball carrier. That's why we like to bring on the game tape aficionados. That's why we bring on analysts from Draft Breakdown, for example, onto the Football Diehard Show. We had Justin Higdon on. We had Peter Davidson on. And you can go to iTunes or Stitcher, search for Football Diehards Podcast with Matt Kelly to subscribe to those shows. And Jay Ajayi was a strange case. Last year, I didn't believe that Jay Ajayi looked like a successful primary NFL ball carrier. And those familiar with his game tape agreed with me. It was the ultimate unholy football analysis alliance. But some of the numbers guys disagreed. The numbers guys love Jay Ajayi because they loved how productive he was. He was a workhorse at Boise State, man, a workhorse. Yes, he had a 40% Dominator rating. That was impressive. But he did it against Mountain Whack Competition. And he was only able to post a 5.3 yards per carry, 36th percentile. He was a compiler at the college level. He was not a Tevin Coleman-esque athletic specimen posting a 7-plus yards per carry. That's not who Jay Ajayi was. Jay Ajayi led all of college football in carries his final year at Boise State. And he was outside the top five in rushing yards that season against some bad defenses. San Jose State is a bad defense. Fresno State is a bad defense. Utah State, bad defense. We can go down the list. Wyoming, all these teams that Jay Ajayi played and he wasn't efficient. And that's why we bring on the film aficionados to understand why he wasn't efficient. And as it turns out, Jay Ajayi's running style was comparable to Bryce Brown. He was never a downhill runner at the college level. He perpetually bounced it outside that's why the reason his yards per carry was 5.3 is because he took so many runs for losses he bounced it outside bounced it outside bounced it outside until he found himself out of bounds for a two-yard loss that happened to Jay Ajayi over and over and over again at Boise State and that running style is the reason why Bryce Brown was flushed out of the league Bryce Brown at one point was the number one high school running back recruit But because he could never figure out how to become an effective downhill runner, he could never get his body turned downhill and run with violence. He was never able to flip that switch in his brain. And because of that, he was never able to be a successful NFL running back. And I believe that's Jay Ajayi's destiny. And you can't come back at me and tell me he's great in the passing game. He's not great in the passing game. He absorbed a considerable number of dump-off passes at Boise State because he's a compiler, but he was never a route runner out of the backfield. That's why the Dolphins went out and drafted Kenyon Drake, a proper NFL pass catcher, out of the backfield. At Boise State, Jay Ajayi overwhelmed college defenders in the Mountain Whack with his size and his burst. But no one would argue that Jay Ajayi at the college level was an effective downhill runner. The film grinders stylistically compared him to Bryce Brown while I was comparing him to Andre Williams. My numbers indicated he looked a lot like Andre Williams. Average speed and agility with great burst. So to me, he was Andre Williams. And to the film grinders I asked... He was Bryce Brown. Does that sound like a running back that you want to trust? Does that sound like a running back that belongs at the top of an NFL depth chart? A Bryce Brown, Andre Williams, Frankenkop? Are you kidding me? And the Miami Dolphins agree with that assessment of Ajayi. That's the beautiful thing. They signed C.J. Anderson, C.J. Anderson, who himself is a replacement-level primary back, to a restricted offer sheet because no one in the Miami Dolphins front office is actually enthusiastic about Jay Ajayi, despite what they say to the media, which is a lie that they're excited about Jay Ajayi. Get out of here. If you were excited about Jay Ajayi, you would not have tried to sign CJ Anderson. And if you watch Jay Ajayi's tape, you would not be excited about Jay Ajayi. If you watched Jay Ajayi play for the Dolphins in 2015, you would not have been excited about Jay Ajayi. So there's nothing that's exciting about Jay Ajayi. So why are people drafting him in the first four rounds of a, of a fantasy football league? I don't understand that. I just saw Jay Ajayi be drafted at the end of the fourth round, and I smacked my forehead. What are you doing? Because I think the odds that Jay Ajayi will be the primary ball carrier for the Miami Dolphins in the second half of 2016 are slim. The second industry misconception that I want to talk about today is that Jordan Matthews is a slot receiver, and that caps his potential. This is wrong on a number of levels. First of all, Jordan Matthews has a history of winning on the outside. During his time at Vanderbilt, when he broke the SEC record for career receiving yards during his time there, he played on the outside. He played on the outside because he's 6'3", 215, and runs a 44540. So if you have an upper percentile height adjusted speed score and you are a prolific college producer, then yeah, you're capable of playing on the outside of the NFL, always without exception just like Marcus Colston was capable of succeeding on the outside and did for the Saints for many years. But Marcus Colston was also incredibly effective out of the slot. In particular in the red zone, you give your receiver more options if you line him up in the slot, then he can either go across the field or head to the corner pylon. You want your best receiver in the red zone to line up in the slot for maximum flexibility. And that's what they did with Marcus Colston for many years in New Orleans. And that's what they're going to be doing with jordan matthews in philadelphia it's not a bad thing that jordan matthews can succeed inside and succeed outside how is that a bad thing somehow that's considered a bad thing talk about a misconception just because you're great inside doesn't mean you're bad outside they're not mutually exclusive and even if they were even if jordan matthews was kendall wright Is that so bad? Kendall Wright has a number of productive seasons on his resume, including a high-end WR2 season in fantasy. I like Kendall Wright in 2016. Kendall Wright has a skill set that aligns perfectly with Mariota. Quick release, high percentage thrower. That's what Mariota is, and that's what Kendall Wright needs in the backfield. Their two respective skill sets fit together perfectly. How could you not like Kendall Wright tethered to Marcus Mariota, knowing Marcus Mariota's style, knowing Kendall Wright's style? It's a perfect fit. How is that not obvious? And similarly for Jordan Matthews, if he's catching passes from a rookie quarterback like Carson Wentz, wouldn't it be better to be closer to the line of scrimmage? This idea that Jordan Matthews receiving snaps out of the slot is a bad thing is nonsense. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a great thing that Jordan Matthews can be that queen chess piece that the Eagles can line up anywhere in the formation to get a mismatch advantage, to build their offense around getting the ball to Jordan Matthews in all quadrants of the football field. That's a good thing. What am I missing? And this idea that slot receivers cap your upside is ridiculous. Did being a slot receiver cap Doug Baldwin's upside? Slot receivers have both a high floor and a high ceiling in today's NFL. Today's NFL is just an amplified version of the West Coast offense. It's all those West Coast offense principles we can talk about going all the way back to Bill Walsh and the 49ers. They're just amplified now. Teams are running an amplified West Coast offense. Get the ball out even faster. Run plays even faster. Even more timing based than ever before. Those principles align with players like Doug Baldwin's skill set, with Jordan Matthews' skill set, with Kendall Wright's skill set. Would anyone mind if Jordan Matthews became Doug Baldwin East? No! Sign me up for that! Yeah! woo